Well, a very good morning to you all. It's lovely to see you. Uh, can I just add one more little item of news and uh, something for you to be certainly praying for this week? This week, the Pebbles Mums and Tots group is hoping to restart again live, so actually having people face-to-face in the building. Please do pray about that and all the arrangements of that. The hope is that we can still maintain the contact that we built up with so many families around the neighborhood so bear that up in prayer for us please if you would uh, let's turn to prayer now as we uh, as we look at these verses from galatians chapter 2 father we do ask for your help this morning there are many deep truths in this passage of scripture uh, we pray lord that you would help us to take those truths and to hide them in our hearts so that we might walk in line with the truth of the gospel, so that we might be more like our saviour. So help us this morning. Assist us by your spirit, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, an amusing story is told about a zoo which was famous for having a fantastic collection of diverse and exotic animals. You can imagine the promotional literature boasting that they had the best collection in the world. If you came there, you're in for a real treat. You would see hundreds, people would come from far and wide to see hundreds of enclosures containing an unparalleled collection of beasts collected from all around the globe. However, the zoo found to their dismay one morning that their prize gorilla, one of the most popular exhibits in the zoo, had passed away during the night. And so at very short notice, they, they recruited uh, you know, a, uh, an out-of-work actor or someone like that to come and dress up in a gorilla suit and take his place. Well, this man started his first shift, <clears throat> and all was going fine, uh, until he leaned against the fence uh, in, of, of his cage and suddenly the fence gave way and he tumbled down into the lion enclosure. Well, in his panic, he started to scream and to thrash around, at which point the lion came bounding over to him, leapt and pinned him to the ground and hissed, Oi, buddy, stop making a scene, you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> now that story uh, amuses me, I hope it amuses you, Uh, But hypocrisy, talking one way and acting another, is no laughing matter. And it is certainly no laughing matter within the church. can be dangerous. Have you ever heard that accusation? I certainly have. The church? The church is full of hypocrites, isn't it? And it should not be so. We ought always to be walking and talking consistently, living consistently with what we say we believe. But unfortunately, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's wittingly or unwittingly, we don't, do we? We all fall down in this area. We're not consistent. And so I suppose it's of some comfort to us when we discover that we're not alone. We read a passage like this, that in fact, This is the very thing that Paul accuses Peter, pillar of the church, chief of the apostles, the preacher to the Jews. He accuses him of doing this very same thing. Look at verse 13. He's being a hypocrite. This is hypocrisy, the way that he's acting. The way Peter is acting is not consistent with the way he speaks, with what he believes. 
So you recall Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians because they've come under attack from false teachers, from false brothers. These are Jewish teachers. They've come from Jerusalem. They've got all the right credentials behind them. And they are adding to the gospel that Paul has first preached to the Galatians. There's been additions made. So the Galatians have believed a gospel, and we've seen it spelled out, haven't we? A gospel of grace. Salvation by grace, by the undeserved gift of God, received through faith alone in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. It's a gospel where no more works are required. Nothing is to be added to what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus has finished the work of saving. So there's nothing more necessary, and they're adding things, but there's nothing more necessary to be saved. So these false brothers are coming amongst them, and they are saying, hey, faith in Jesus is great. We love Jesus too, but that's not the end of the story. You've got a Bible here. You really do need to keep yourself kosher. God's given us the law. We've got the Old Testament full of laws. And it's the law, listen, it's the law that will make you, or that will help you to see and teach you how to be, how to live acceptable in God's sight. How are you going to keep yourself clean before God? And they started to teach these additional requirements necessary Not just to be clean, but to be accepted by God for salvation itself. That's the issue. If you fail to do them, you will not be acceptable in God's sight. For he is too holy to look upon sin. The things you do, the food you eat, your lack of proper hygiene and cleanliness renders you polluted and unclean. And nothing unclean may enter into God's presence. You can sort of almost hear them proof texting, can't you? Uh, pulling open, like I'm sure they were quick to turn open the book of Leviticus and go through Leviticus and show you the laws and show you what you were supposed to be doing. By the way, we need to beware of proof texters. You've probably heard the phrase, haven't you, the catchphrase. A text taken out of context becomes a a pretext for a proof text. That's the point. If you take verses out of the Bible and don't keep them in their setting. You can start to prove all kinds of things. Got to be wary of that. Someone quotes to you a proof text, and you're thinking, well, that sounds, that's not what I thought. Turn it up, read the whole passage, and see what is actually being said. That's really important. But you can see why it might have upset the Gentile believers to have people like this coming in. I mean, has Paul misled them? Has Paul got the gospel wrong? Or perhaps, maybe even worse, are there actually two gospels? And it depends where you come from and what your background is as to which gospel you've got to apply to yourself. See, this is the mess that Paul is straightening out, and we've seen him started to do it. Last time we looked at that landmark meeting in Jerusalem. Do you remember? You can sort of see it outside the steps of the church, the photo opportunity, the handshake. The apostles are united against the false brothers. They've resisted their teaching. They've shaken hands, and they're united in one true gospel. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Caroline even prayed it. It warms my heart to hear it. It's a beautiful gospel, isn't it? And we all say hooray to it and to that meeting, to the results of that meeting in Jerusalem. Because 
It was the truth and the freedom of the gospel that's handed down to you and to me that was at stake that day. And it was one. And now in the second half of chapter two here, Paul recounts a, an incident that happened, a practical episode, and then he backs it up with some truths of the gospel that are going to underline and underpin everything he's been fighting for. So are you ready to look at them? In this section, we're going to see, I've got three, three headings here, Peter's hypocrisy, Paul's rebuke, and then, and I'm very careful in the way I've worded this, their glorious gospel, the glorious gospel of both Peter and Paul, just one of them isn't walking in line with it. So have a, let's have a look at the first one then, verse 11. And it'd be really helpful this morning if we can make sure we've got these, either the words in front of us uh, in, in Bibles or looking at, keep them on the screen so we can see what's going on here. There's a lot of information. So verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, for you to get the impact of this, you've got to remember a few things about Peter's journey thus far. We've looked at a little bit of Paul's story and this morning, we're just going to have a quick look at Peter's story. What's brought him to this point? It's important background. First of all, remember, Peter had witnessed the ministry of Jesus firsthand. He's in the inner circle of Jesus's inner circle of disciples. He's seen Jesus touch the unclean, hasn't he? On more than one occasion. Sick people, lepers. He's seen Jesus mingle with sinners. That's what they were all called, weren't they? He, he, he eats with tax collectors and sinners, we're told. Jesus is doing that. He's witnessed Jesus's gracious interactions with Samaritans, with Gentiles, even, you remember, a, a Roman centurion that he's, that he's interacted with. And more importantly, perhaps, especially as we've just finished our Mark series, he's heard Jesus's words which he spoke directly to the 12 in Mark chapter 7. We keep going back to this. Let's put them up on the screen. Just get them again. This is Jesus talking to the 12. Are you so dull, says Jesus. Don't you see? Nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and out of his body. In, and look at the parenthesis, really important. This is what, I, what they understood. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, kosher, out the window. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, not what goes in. And then, of course, to finish the picture off, there's the incident on the roof in Joppa. Do you remember? God sent a vision to Peter in Acts chapter 10, Three times repeated this vision, rubbing it in. A sheet full of unclean animals is lowered down from heaven. And a voice from heaven, these unclean animals, says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter's, oh, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And it happens three times. And God insists again, three times. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
And then the next day, Paul is taken to visit Cornelius. This is all preparation for it. And Cornelius is in the Italian regiment. He's a, he's a centurion of the Italian regiment. Do you think he's Jew or Gentile? He's a, he's a Gentile. And Peter finds that when he, when he interacts with Cornelius, he finds that God has made this man clean. It is so clear that God has accepted the household of Cornelius that uh, Peter goes in and, and visits with him and is happy to eat with him. And he says to them in the house, Acts 10, 28, you are well aware, and everybody would have been well aware, that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit, Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Got it? I mean, does Peter, Peter's understood this, hasn't he? And, and to reinforce this, he then goes to Jerusalem and he faces criticism for this whole incident with Cornelius. The church is like, what were you doing, Peter? And when Peter uh, is accused of this, he stands his ground, he recounts the story of what happened in the house of Cornelius, and when the church hears this, they get it too. They all understand what's going on. We read in Acts chapter 11, they had no further objections and they praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. This is a wonderful story. This is the story of the walls of separation coming down. It's what makes the church the church, the glory of the church. Jew and Gentile, no more. And so, this is not even a controversial point by the time Peter makes his visit to Antioch. Everybody's got this. It's established. His visit comes after that. So when Peter comes to visit this wonderful, vibrant church in Antioch, the place, remember, Antioch's the place where the believers were first given the name Christians. It's a glorious church. Well, Peter acts totally in line with all of his convictions and everything that he knows. He's completely consistent. So you can picture them. They're all there together. They are eating together. One big table. Jews and Gentiles all mixed up at the same table. It's, hey, Peter, pass me the prawns. Yeah. And would you like a side plate of bacon with your sausages? It's, you see, all the barriers have come down. By these actions, as Peter sits there chewing on a sausage, do you see the profound effect that has on the church? It preaches the gospel, doesn't it? They see this chief apostle, pillar of the church, from Jerusalem, and he is endorsing what they have all come to believe. He's confirming it, a big tick. Yes, you're bang on. This is what the gospel means. Our right standing with God has got nothing to do with our ethnicity. It's got nothing to do with who we mingle with or sit next to or what we put in our mouths. Glorious. But then one day, it all kicks off. Right, we're up to date now. See, some visitors we read in these, these verses we just read come from James in Jerusalem, or so they claim. They show up in town and they have come to go and see what's happening in the church in Antioch. So they turn up for the church service and they stay for the church lunch afterwards. Actually, you've got to understand that the church lunch is probably something that they had very regularly. At the end of it, they would have the Lord's Supper. 
And that makes what happens next, if possible, even worse. This is happening around the Lord's table. Peter decides this Sunday he is going to sit on a Jews-only table. Just with his friends, just the Jews, just the circumcised crew. And he, when the food comes around, he says to the clam chowder, he's saying, no thanks. Politely decline. I don't actually want the clam chowder today. It's unclean. And what's more, when they see him taking this action, some of the other Jews decide, oh, we'd better sit with Peter. And even Barnabas caves to the pressure. Do you see? And why does he do it? Peter, Paul is very explicit here. He says it's because he's afraid. He's afraid of a group of people, the circumcision group, the false brothers. Afraid. It's good old-fashioned peer pressure, isn't it? He knows what is the right thing to do, but he cares more about the opinion of others than about God's truth and what God thinks. And in Paul's view, this is more than just a case of bad manners to be overlooked. It's a total denial of the gospel preached by his actions. What he is communicating to the members of this church, what it all boils down to, actually, is that somehow he believes there's something happening here that makes Gentiles inferior in some way to Jews. He's dividing things up on the basis of nationality, national background. Now imagine if we did that here. You'd get the scandal of this. It doesn't have to be nationality. We make divisions about all kinds of stuff. So imagine we made a division, a division over economic status in the church. And we said, Do you know what? If you live outside of the Walton estate, which is a very special estate, by the way, if you live outside the Walton estate, then when we have the next church lunch, actually, could you go to the back of the line? And actually, could you really try not to touch too many things? Because we're going to be touching them afterwards. And, you, you know, we're not too sure about your hygiene. Yeah? Or imagine another example that we were to say that, do you know what? The under 50s from now on, they get the Lord's Supper first, actually. We'll have a table up here for them. Uh, and we'll, get, we'll, have the, we'll pass out, we'll hand out the Lord's Supper to them. Don't put your hand out for it if you're over 50, please. Uh, and after the service, there'll be a table at the back. You know, we, we don't want you, oh, you old people to, to miss out. Uh, so you can grab something on the way out. Imagine! Do you know, by doing that, what are we doing? We're actually denying the gospel. Undermining what we preach. This is what's going on here. This is why it's so big. It's a lesson in the power of our actions. Because it's all very well to say you believe something. Uh, and it's great when your actions actually confirm that they're in line with what you say you believe when there's no cost to you. But the real test comes when you have to make a stand for the truth, when there are people there whose opinions you care about who are going to be thinking things about you negatively. And Peter's failure here not only denies the gospel, but it drags good men with him. So Paul pushes back his chair. He wipes his mouth with a napkin and he gets to his feet. Let's look at Paul's rebuke, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You know, a public sin sometimes requires a public rebuke. And in what follows, actually, I want you to see how Paul is actually quite gentle in the way he does this and respectful, but he gives no quarter. So first of all, look at those ver- that verse, verse 14. Who knows what the prefix ortho means? What does ortho, put ortho in front of a word, what does it mean? Someone shouted out in the morning service, don't let them be cleverer than you are. Come on, ortho means, oh, we've got it whispered over here. You can shout it out. Straight. Yes. So tell me. So someone who is orthodox, if dox is your opinions, what, that means they've got straight opinions. Right? Down the line, their opinions are the straight, straight correct ones. Um, an orthodontist, what do they do? They straighten the teeth. Got it? Yeah. Uh, and what about an orthopedic practitioner? What do they straighten? That's the good old traditional child straightener. That's what we take our children to at the hospital, isn't it? The child straightener. See, now that expression in verse 14, if you look at it there, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Actually, that's the word ortho there. He's saying you are not ortho-gospel truth. Yeah, You're not straight in line with gospel truth here, Peter. You know, it always used to be the case, and I think it probably still is now, when a police officer pulls you over, you know, or maybe you've had an accident or something like that, they suspect that, or they want to eliminate whether you've been driving under the influence. What do they get you to do? They get, they get like the line or the curb or something like that, don't they? And they say, right, could you please show me that you can walk in a straight line uh, along the curb, right? And you're wobbling all over the place. You've, the game's up, isn't it? This is the same picture here. Peter's walk, the way that he is acting, is not in line with the gospel. Gospel line going up there, and Peter's like, he's all over the place. Peter, you're not in line with the gospel. You've gone off, you've gone off course. Now, here is a salutary lesson for us all, isn't it? And it's a big challenge, actually one of the biggest challenges, really, that we've got in this text this morning. Are you, are I, am I, walking in line with the gospel? Are we in line? And this will affect every part of who you are and your, your life as a Christian. Is, is what you're doing in line with the gospel? So what are you going to keep asking yourself? I mean, think about, let's think about it in at least three areas here. What about in your interactions with other people? What's the gospel got to say about that? How do you, how do you walk in line with the gospel in the way that you treat others? You know, it dawned on me uh, a number of years back when we first had children. You know, you get to that point if you're a parent and you sort of think, that the, I must have told him to stop doing that 200 times. Why does he not stop doing this? And you're getting worked up. And then it dawned on me, be patient. How, how many hundreds of times... Must your father in heaven have been patient with you over doing the same thing again? It's the gospel. You see, it's the gospel being applied there. If I'm in line with the gospel, I'm recognising, do you know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. He's a sinner saved by grace. The way I treat him has got to be with grace, in line with the gospel. Love and patience and kindness 
all those fruit of the Spirit, there's not going to be any superior attitude towards each other. We both know we're saved by grace. No disapproval of people. We've been shown grace, we extend it to others. What about in, uh, in the realm of our, of our thought life and our feelings about ourselves? This is a powerful one, isn't it? How do, you, how do you get that in line with the gospel? So important. Do you know how many mornings I wake up and I think, oh, do you know, I made a, such a mess of yesterday and I feel miserable in the morning. I think, well, so, Andy, you are just so rubbish. I've got to preach to myself. What's the gospel? got to walk in line with the gospel gospel tells me that despite all of that i'm accepted in jesus christ i'm loved by my father in heaven he has redeemed me he has justified me he's made me righteous and i get up and i've i've got to stop these thoughts they're not in line with the gospel i've got to think about ourselves in line with the gospel if i don't do that i'm wobbling all over the place falling over what about the decisions that we make in life? Perhaps this is the most obvious one to apply. The gospel insists Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to live my life in line with the gospel. That means I'm not living for my comforts, my pleasures. Not living for any other idol of this age. Jesus Christ is Lord. My life's going to come into line with that. Every decision I make. Do you see how this affects everything? Peter you're not walking in line with the gospel. It will impact every part of your life. And when you don't do it, when you start to wobble all over the place, your testimony will be ruined. You'll be preaching something other than, you'll be denying the gospel by the preaching of your life. So it is crucially important to grasp the truths that underpin who we are in Christ. You see, you can't walk in line with it unless you know what the line is. Do you see? And that's really where Paul is going to go now in verses 15 to 20. They are verses that are dense and full of precious truths that underpin who you are, what you're supposed to be walking in line with. Unless you get these truths, you won't know how to walk straight. So we're going to take a quick look at them. There's a lot here, and we've got very little time. But I'll ask you not to panic if you don't feel like you haven't really got it this morning. I hope you're going to get something. Evidently, Peter needed reminding about this too. Very interesting, isn't it, when you see an apostle preaching to an apostle? Because he needs reminding of stuff. And the following chapters of Galatians are going to revisit these foundations that are so important in quite a lot of detail. But do try and tune in now. These are some very complicated sentences, but we're going to try and get them. Are we up for this? Come on, let's do this, right? So, starting at verse 15, I'm going to do my best here. <laughs> I didn't feel like we completely lost the nine o'clock crew, so I'm hoping you're going to do just as well. The glorious gospel of Peter and Paul, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's a dizzying sentence, isn't it? It's got a lot of justified law and Jesus Christ in there. But first off, to understand what's going on here, you need to understand what Paul is not saying. He's not saying in verse 15, look at verse 15. Can we have the verse up actually on the screen? It will help us. 
He is not saying that Jews are not sinners. He's talking here, rather, using the point of view of the average Jew, which would include, you know, false teachers, Pharisees, all the... He's talking to Peter in the language that Jewish people would use about these things. This is a conversation between two Jewish people. Got that? So by sinner, and you'll notice the NIV's caught this, at least in this one occasion, and put it in quotes. By sinner, he simply means a person who lives a lifestyle that is... Looks like it's in opposition to the law of Moses, certainly the ceremonial law. So a Gentile, someone who was raised to eat non-kosher. Yeah, they're eating the prawns and the bacon. Uh, Someone who still has a foreskin. Someone who's uncircumcised. That's what he means by sinner, funnily enough. The law of Moses would certainly look at someone like that and declare them unclean. That's kind of the language of Leviticus, isn't it? This is an unclean person. Okay? Look at the way they live. Look at the things they eat, the places they go. Unclean. The Pharisee, though, would prefer, and this is kind of how it went in, the, in Jewish society, would prefer the word sinner put there, actually, because that's what it is, really. It's a transgressor of the law. But this is the important thing to get. So by, the weird thing is, by this definition of the word sin, it's not a sin to be a sinner, and that's going to be, just by this definition of, of, the, of the word sin, and not a non-keeper of the ceremonial law is not, doesn't make you a sinner. And that's going to be important later, so hold on to it. Okay? Got that? So let's carry on. Paul declares to Peter then that they, as Jews, know that the law cannot justify anyone. That's the first big point here. You want to get that? Have a look at verse 16. Again, it's classic. It's for Peter, remember? So we've got to have it three times, haven't we, for Peter? So look at the verse. So we who are by birth Jews and not Gentile sinners, verse 16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and number two, not by observing the law. Why? Because, three, by observing the law, no one will be justified. Have you got the point? Three times. He's banging the same drum there. Let me ask you a question. (laughs) See if you can get it. What's the one thing that's not going to justify us? The law. Well done. You got it. So you've understood verse 16, pretty much. That's basically what it's saying there. So the big important question then is, what is justification? Well, the answer to that, if I'm being mischievous, is it's something only Jesus can provide and that the law cannot, right? We know that much so far already, don't we? Now, listen, you've got to get this uh, about justification. See, that's what I mean by the ceremonial part of the law is the bits about the eating and the separation, the diets, the rituals, the cleansing, all of that stuff. That was all about keeping clean. Why do you want to keep clean? So that you can approach God, right? Now, the gospel, when you get to the New Testament, you get different language used. The gospel speaks in terms of being justified. Not about being clean, but being justified. That's the gospel word. And it's a legal term. It's a term from the law courts. Justification, being justified, 
is about more than being clean before God. Jesus does more, and this is so important, Jesus does more than just clean you up at the cross. That's not what the cross is about. I mean, it's part of it. That's not where it ends. Now, listen to this. The opposite of clean is to be unclean or polluted. Got that? That's fairly obvious, isn't it? Now, what's the opposite of justified? The opposite of justified is condemned, right? It's law court language. A Christian, then, is a justified sinner, a sinner who has not got condemnation hanging over us. So we might still sin, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Got it? Martin Luther used uh, a Latin phrase uh, to describe that war, that tension that exists within the Christian, within the believer. I wonder if Nathan can translate this. Tiago could translate this in the nine o'clock, and I have high expectations from Latin boy here. Okay, so simul justus et peccator. Simul, at the same time, simultaneously, justified and sinner. That's what you are as a Christian. At the same time, how's that possible? At the same time, a sinner and justified. This is beautiful. This is, this is so deep and so important as Christians. Now, get this sentence. God does not accept us because we've become righteous enough. That's not why he accepts us. No. We are righteous because God has accepted us in Christ. Shall I say that again? Did you get it? I say that again, I say it again. God does not accept us because we've become righteous enough, because we've, we've suddenly become lovely enough, we've cleaned ourselves up enough, and finally I'm acceptable to God, now he accepts me. No, we are righteous, we are acceptable to God because he's accepted us in Christ. Big difference. On the cross, Jesus bore the penalty. Don't we believe this? He bore the penalty for our sins, past, present and future. That's the gospel, isn't it? No more to be done. Listen to how uh, J.I. Packer puts it. This, I should have put this up on the screen. This is really good. I'll probably have to read this twice as well for you to get it. Just concentrate, okay? To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial, there he is in the court, that he is not liable to any penalty and that he is entitled to all the privileges of a man who's kept the law. That's amazing. To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he's not liable of any penalty and he's entitled to all the privileges of a man who's kept the law as if he's not broken any law at all. Now, got, got that? That's justified. Justified is a magnificent gospel word. Now, back up again. Let's remember verse 16. The law can't do this. Got it? What's the one thing the law can't do? Justify you. Can't justify you. Might make you look clean, but it can't justify you. All the law can do is accuse you, isn't it? That's what the law does. A really good illustration of this is the law is like a mirror, isn't it? You stand in front of the mirror and it shows you all your faults. That's what the law does. It shows you all the things, your naughty things you've done. 
Well, a mirror can't change you. It just shows you what you are. That's what the law does. The law's great. It's perfect. It's a brilliant mirror. Actually, it's a fantastic mirror. You know, there's a lot of really positive stuff to say about the law because it's a brilliant, brilliant mirror. But it can't change you. It can't justify you. It can't fix you. So now, with that in mind, Paul continues, verse 17. These are complicated verses again. (laughs) If... While we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. That's a hard sentence. (laughs) What's Paul saying here? Let me try and break it down. So, follow this. With it up on the screen, please. So, we turn to Jesus for justification. The law's not going to do it, is it? law can't do it, so we turn to Jesus. But what happens when we do that? When you genuinely do that, and you've let go of the law, and you've turned to Jesus. Well, as the Jewish believer lets go of the dependence on the law of Moses to make them clean, their life is going to start to look like the life of a sinner. Do you see? All the other Jews around him are saying, hang on a minute, he's not kosher anymore. He's a sinner. That's why it's so important we get that definition of what a sinner is in verse 15, isn't it? But, Paul says, does that mean then that Christ promotes sin? Is Jesus making you a sinful person with this gospel? No, he says. Why? Because... If I rebuild that way to try and be righteous, i.e. through the law, all I'll end up doing is proving that I'm a lawbreaker. Because that's what the law does. It's the mirror. It just shows you you're a lawbreaker. And worse than that, this is why it's so bad to build this back up again, I actually turn away from God's provision, Jesus. I swap him out. I reject, it's a rejection of Jesus, isn't it? Go back to the law, build that up again. You've rejected Jesus. And you've rejected him for, stupidly, for a system that can't save you anyway, can't justify you. As verse 19 indicates, just look at it. You cannot live for God unless you die to the law. There's got to be done with, hasn't it? There's not two ways. You can't pick. I think I'm going to do it by, uh, by law. And you can go ahead and do it by, you know, faith in Jesus. No, there's only one way. There's only one that justifies. So in other words, the closer you try to get to God by works, if you think that's how you're going to get close to God, actually all it's going to do is it's going to drive you further and further away from him. Because you have rejected his grace. That's a huge amount to take in. Well done, We've got through the really tricky stuff here, and probably you've only picked up one or two. That's fine. We're going to cover this all a bit later. Don't worry. It's an overview, because the, 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 the next chapters are going to get right into this, and it's going to be fun, okay? This is glorious, though, isn't it? Now, perhaps an illustration will help here. I think we've got time to do this. this is, I found this really, really helpful. It helps you to understand what's going on in the situation Paul's writing to. So this is an illustration from Bible teacher John Piper. Now, see if the uh, person clicking the slides can keep up at the right time, Dan. Okay. The law of Moses was given as a train track of obedience. Picture this story. There's your train track of obedience. 
along which we were to be pulled by the engine of grace. There we are. And the coupling connecting the wagon to the, uh, to the engine. That's faith. Got it? Let's put that in there. Coupling. There's faith. Well, that's a good picture, isn't it? I think that's really helpful. And why is that particularly helpful? Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach this. That's what's so interesting. Salvation's always been by grace, through faith, along the track of obedience. You could never do it on your own. And we call that direction of travel, which actually on the video is that way, we call that direction of travel sanctification. That's what sanctification is. Becoming holy, becoming like Jesus, is travelling on a track. You can click that one on. So, this then helps us to understand the problem of what the Pharisees and these Judaizers, these false brothers, are teaching. What they've done is they've taken the track. Let's have a look at the track again. They've taken that track, okay, perfectly good track, the law, uh, and with every sleeper and nail in it, they have stood it upright, propped it against heaven's doors, and tried to use it as a ladder to climb up to heaven. That's what's going on here. And that is salvation by works. Another name for that is legalism. That's legalism. They had understood the law to basically just be a long checklist of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, steps, rungs, as it were, by which we demonstrate our fitness to attain heaven. And here's the problem. Put the track back down on the ground, right? And what you'll find with that track is you can even remove some of the sleepers out from underneath that track and it will function perfectly all right still. You could boot out the old sort of kosher sleeper and still it works. Don't throw the track away. Don't be ridiculous. People wanted to accuse Paul of doing that. No, he wasn't doing that. He's just saying there are some bits of this that can, we can knock them out. But if you stand it up like a ladder, every rung is necessary. It becomes crucial. And it's this ladder, says Paul, propping it up as a ladder. That's what they've torn down. Don't put it back up again, he's saying. That's the legalistic misuse of the law. Law's good. We're not throwing the law out. We're going to have a whole load of stuff on the law in the coming weeks. But don't misuse the law, says Paul. Now, that picture will help us as we go on through the book. But let's round up the, the whole story that Paul's telling us at the end of chapter 2 now here by looking at those two glorious verses. And some of you will be dying for us to get onto these verses. They are wonderful. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, do you see what Paul's arguing for here? This completes the picture. It's a life. What we need is a life where the law no longer holds over us the power to condemn. That's fundamental to the way that we think about the law. The law, you see, cannot help but condemn us. It's a condemnation machine. It's what it is. Because we can't keep it. All law ever does is, is condemn you. 
So how do you get free of that? How are you going to break free? What will make the hounds of the law stop chasing you all the way through this life? What's going to take you out of the law's jurisdiction? It's got no jurisdiction, no jurisdiction on you, like the American TV show. It's not your jurisdiction. Yeah? What removes its authority over us? Listen, if, uh, and I, I, th- I hope this is very unlikely, if you got clocked speeding this afternoon, you know, doing 70 past school or something, uh, and you get that letter through the post, what's the only sure way you can get out of that fine? Now, you could try all sorts of things. You could try arguing your case, but believe you me, there's probably not even a human being involved in these things. It's just a computer. You can't, your computers, they don't care about nuances or anything like that. It's your bang to rights, mate. Yeah, you're guilty. And what they'll do is, if you try to argue, they'll send you a photo through the post and say, right, there you go, there's the evidence. Condemned. It is a merciless condemnation machine, isn't it, the law? But there is a way out, though. There is a way out. And funnily enough, we remind ourselves of this every time we go to a wedding. Isn't that strange? What's the one thing that we say can break the legal covenant, the contract, even one made before God? What's the one thing that can do it? Death. Death can do it. Now, I do not recommend this as a way to get out of your speeding ticket. But if you die, they won't be able to squeeze it out of you. Okay? You can't get money from a corpse. Now, look again at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, this is precious truth, isn't it? This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is our union with Christ. You know, I mean, notice, you read through the New Testament, it is full of expressions, calls believers all the time, those who are in Christ, in Christ all the time. That's what you are as a Christian. Even in him in his death, united to him, with him in his death. That's what baptism's all about. Getting down into the grave. Dead. This life's over. When we first come to Christ and trust him, we die. It's a funeral day when you put your trust in Jesus. That is, we are united with him in his death. We died 2,000 years ago. And that means... The law no longer has authority over you to condemn you. It doesn't. It cannot condemn you. Someone can quote at you, the wages of sin is death. And you say, yeah, I've been there, I've done it. I've already died. And I'm alive again. And how do I now live? What is my new life like? Well, says Paul, it's a life of walking by faith. Trusting, following every day the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, says Paul. That's what your life looks like now. That is walking in line with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we've got to bring our lives into line with this truth in every aspect. We have been justified. There is no condemnation for those who are in And that is the grace of God. We'll see more of it in coming weeks, but let's pray now. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who did not just die to clean us up, but to justify us. We thank you that 
the glorious truths of this gospel have not been lost. And so we, help, we, we pray that you would help us not to deny those truths in the way that we live, in the way that we treat others. Help us to keep in line with the gospel, even in the way that we think about ourselves. Help us to remember each of us are, are no better than the other. We are all sinners saved by grace, but that in your son we are accepted. We have no need to prove ourselves or to climb up a ladder to you. So help us never to return to a system of, of working and performing, trying to justify ourselves before you by keeping rules, by enforcing rules on others. Help us instead, Father, please, to revel in the grace you have displayed in your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.